Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm the worship pastor. I want to welcome all of you who are here in person. Also, those who are participating in worship online, you are a part of this as well. So thank you for being here this morning. I uh, hope you're ready to learn and you've been worshiping with us as we've gone. We're in the book of Jonah and we're in our third week. So just a really quick recap. Uh, week one, we learned about Jonah as the disobedient prophet. So just to remember what happens, right? God calls Jonah, his prophet, his messenger, to go and preach to Nineveh and to call them to repentance. And I'll just bring the map up here just to give you, again, kind of an understanding of what was going on. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and instead he wants to go to the end of the known world at the time, modern-day Spain, to Tarshish, right? Opposite direction is what Jonah decides that he wants to do. So he disobeys God, and he gets on a ship, and he's sailing toward Tarshish, and a storm comes. And eventually, uh, the sailors on the boat throw him off because that's the only way that they can stay alive. And Jonah uh, gets swallowed by a fish. The storm stops. Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. And last week, we learned about Jonah in the belly of the fish as the disciplined prophet, that God disciplined Jonah to turn him back to himself. And and God meets him there. And what does Jonah do? He writes this beautiful poem that has uh, a prayer of thanksgiving to God about what God has done for him. And we read at the end of chapter 2, verse 10, it said, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. Kind of just a side funny note. In Hebrew, uh, vomited means ka. I just kind of think of the fish like ka, like vomiting up Jonah. So, so Jonah is vomited out and he's back to where he started on dry land. Now, before we go into Jonah chapter 3 this morning, I, I want to just help uh, us better understand Nineveh. I gave a little bit of context in in week one about kind of the evil history of the Assyrians, and Nineveh was the main city here, and this is just kind of a a picture that helps give you the idea of how large this city was, that that Jonah was going up to a a huge city, the largest city at the time in the entire world, over 120,000 people, and that was the task that God called Jonah to do. And what's really, really fascinating is they've actually done some archaeological digs in modern-day Iraq, which is where Nineveh was in Assyria, and they've done some archaeological digs, and they actually found Nineveh. So they found the, the city walls, a perimeter of about seven to seven and a half miles uh, around, kind of like an oval, and they found these walls, and inside uh, the compound was the king's palace, and it was known back then as like the greatest king's palace there was. As we were worshiping this morning, singing Echo Holy, like when we're in the presence of God, I was just picturing this amazing glory of God, right? The palace of God when we were with him one day. It's so exciting. This would have been nothing like that. But to the world, this was the greatest palace there was. And what they found in the palace was these hallways. And in the hallways, they found pictures. So here's what the pictures were. The, the, the Assyrian kings would hire sculptors. And these sculptors would paint and make uh, pictures that represented Assyrian victories, right? The, the king's military conquest and, and power, they, they, would, they would draw these pictures that represented their victories. And we actually have many of them today, which is amazing. You can go online, or if you want to travel all the way to Europe, you can go to the British Museum. It's in London, and they have a whole section dedicated to these uh, Ninevite paintings. It's really amazing. And as you see here, we already have up. This was one of the, the, the pictures that they found, and it's the Battle of Lachish. Now, Lachish was a significant Israelite city, and, and this is the Ninevites conquering 
Lachish in Israel. And what you see here, you got to look kind of closely, maybe put your glasses on, but there's actually kind of like a bridge. They called it like a highway, and they put it up against the walls of Lachish so they could go in and besiege the city. And, and what we find here is what the, what the Ninevites would do, the Assyrians would do over the course of besieging Lachish for like a month, right? Because these went on for a long time. It wasn't like a 30-minute battle. So what, what they would do is they would take these giant spears, like, like these trees, and they would carve sharp spears. And what they would do is they would impale the Israelites on these giant spears, and, and they would go and they'd put them on a hill so that everyone inside Lachish could see that, that what they were doing to their enemy, and this is what surely would come to the rest of the people still in Lachish, right? They wanted this fear tactic. They actually have a picture of that. I wanted to keep it PG, so I didn't want to show it this morning, but you can go online and find pictures of this. I also shared a couple weeks ago that uh, one of the things the Assyrians would do is they would carve and skin alive uh, these Israelites and people who, who they were fighting against. They were known as amazing and strategic, but they were known as brutal. And, and what's really cool is you can go later, some homework, and read about this battle in 2 Kings 18. You can read about the detailed account of the battle of Lachish, and this was found. So why do I tell you this? Why do I share these details? For two reasons. One is it's amazing and so cool to find, it's rad, to find actual historical evidence of stories in the Bible, right? We need to know these are stories that happened. There's still, we have evidence today. And the second and more important thing I want to bring to your mind is picture what would go through the mind of an Israelite as they think about the Assyrians. I want, I want you to think about the deep emotion that you would feel as Jonah approaching that giant city with all that in mind of what these people have done to you and to your people. He was going to preach against some of the most exceptional injustices the world had ever seen, and God was going to use him as a dynamic prophet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the evidences of the truth of your Bible. Thank you that we have so much evidence that proves that these stories actually did happen, God, that your word is true. And God, we pray that you would just give us a divine insight into what you want for us this morning. God, each of us, you want us to leave here more shaped into the image of Jesus Help us be quick to repent this morning, quick to see our sin, quick to trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn to the book of Jonah if you have a physical Bible or some electronic device? It is right after Obadiah and right before Micah. It is just a two-page book in most Bibles, so it's kind of hard to find. Don't be afraid to use your index at the beginning. There's no shame in that. But let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, right away, you may have a little uh, deja vu or think, this sounds oddly familiar, right? This sounds familiar to chapter 1. 
Now, remember in, in chapter 1, it says something very similar. Uh, I kind of have a, a slide to show you the comparison here. In chapter 1, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In chapter 3, very similarly, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What's the difference here? The difference is that God didn't give him the message the second time. The first time, God says, for their evil has come up before me. And the second time, God just says, go, and then when you get there, I'm going to tell you a message to deliver. What happened when God gave him a bigger picture, when God gave him kind of both steps to the equation? Jonah ran the opposite direction. So this time God says, one step at a time, Jonah. You're just to go to Nineveh this time. I'm not going to complicate it. I don't want to scare you. Go to Nineveh and I will give you the message. And as I was thinking about this, I thought how often God does this with us. He just gives us one step at a time. Right? You want all the answers. You, you want to know everything. Right? What college am I supposed to go to? What career? And what is my family going to look like? And we could just go on and on. And yet sometimes God just says, just pray. Just get on your knees and pray. Go ask uh, your parents for advice. Go do this. Take this step of obedience. God often just says one thing at a time. And in the moment, it's frustrating. But I am kind of grateful because if I look back at my life and I think if God would have just given me kind of a full picture, I might have been like Jonah. I might have been like, I can't handle that. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm running. So God just gives Jonah one step this time. And the similarity between chapters 1 and 3, it reveals that God is giving Jonah a second chance. That's what the text says. He came to Jonah a second time. God is giving Jonah a fresh start. God is a God all about fresh starts. If God has given you a chance this morning, can you say amen? Amen. Amen. All of us. I ran out of my second chances so long ago. It's just now it's just many chances. He's given me many chances. And that's what God does. And so times when I've disobeyed or I've uh, run away from God, he's been merciful and patient. And many of you could just amen and testify to that in your own life. And so I wanted to say this morning, if you're feeling ashamed or if you are feeling too far gone, that God is a God of second chances, that God is going to be quick to forgive you. He's quick to use you. And all you have to do is look at Jonah, right? Big time disobeying and running from God. And yet God is in his mercy and compassion is still near to Jonah and he is still using Jonah. Take great comfort in that. But I will say if you are running, right, you find yourself going to Tarshish or a couple weeks ago, I said, where in your life is Jesus not welcome? Where are you running from God? I want to encourage you to stop, stop running, stop, just stop, because we learned from reading this book that it is futile and totally counterproductive to run from God, right? I talked about that a couple weeks ago, that we often have to work harder at our disobedience, right? Jonah wants to go 2,500 miles this way, and what happens? God just spits him right back up, right, to do the original assignment. So turn from God are turned to God now. And that's what Jonah eventually does. He's been through hell and high water. He's right back where he started. Now the text says he arose, right? Jonah now arises. Instead of going down, he arises. He's ready to deliver God's message. Now Jonah, as a messenger, probably didn't look in tip-top shape. I think about if God called me to go preach somewhere, uh, I probably would want to put on my best polo. I would want to look nice, right? We all just have a natural inclination to want to be clean and want to look nice, most of us. But Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. 
Now, many scholars speculate that uh, the acidic belly of the fish would have caused him to lose the pigment of his skin. So this dude would have been pasty white and slimy and probably very gross. It reminds me of, of God sending the messenger John the Baptist, and you can read about how John the Baptist looked like this crazy person, that God often doesn't work in the way that we would think he would work. So slimy Jonah, right, is going to give this message, not your most attractive messenger. And what's his message? What, what's Jonah's message? He gives a five-word sermon, a five-word sermon in Hebrew. In English, it's eight words. It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He preaches the shortest sermon ever, right? I've already spoke hundreds of words to you this morning. He, he, he preaches the shortest sermon ever, and, and it was clear though, right? It was like a very direct, clear message. And my question for you all this morning is, was his message sincere? His message was clear, but, but was it sincere? So there's two main views I, I want to pose to you on, on Jonah's fascinating sermon, because this just stood out to me. Five words. Like, Jonah doesn't even say what God he represents. He doesn't say what Nineveh has done wrong. He's just assuming maybe all these things. And so I dug deeper, and there's two primary views, and you see them up here. The first is this, is Jonah gives a half-hearted sermon. Another way to say it would be he's giving prophetic sabotage. He wants to give the least amount of information possible so that they don't even know what they're repenting about, that they don't want to turn. Maybe he's mumbling underneath his breath. So they do not turn and repent, and therefore God does not forgive them. The other view is that Jonah had a much longer message to say, a much longer message that just focused on Nineveh's destruction. And that's what the author wants us to understand about his message, that he preached much more, and it just focuses on Nineveh's destruction. Now, I've wrestled back and forth with this, and there's a lot of scholars view it differently. So we are left speculating. We don't really know. And I'm not going to tell you which answer it is, but I want to suggest something. Most people see chapter 4, and they think it brings insight onto Jonah's heart in chapter 3. And I agree. We're going to find out next week, more to come next week, that, that Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to repent. So I, I do think that plays a role in us viewing his sermon in chapter 3. But I want to suggest this, that just like you and me, Jonah is a roller coaster when it comes to following and obeying God. That just a couple days ago, right, he was in the fish for three days and three nights. We don't know when he prayed in the fish, but just a couple days ago, he wanted to die but God met him, and in God's compassion, maybe Jonah genuinely did have a change of heart. Maybe Jonah's dynamically preaching to the Ninevites, this evil, huge city that, that needed to hear this message. Maybe Jonah got filled with God's Spirit, and he went and he preached in power. Maybe. I want to suggest that. I want you to do more work in your own assessment to come to your conclusion. But either way, God used Jonah as a dynamic prophet because the message was dynamic and God was in the steering wheel. So church, we must be faithful to bring God's message. And that's my first point this morning is we must tell and show the story of Jesus. We must tell and show the story of Jesus. You heard Pastor Tom mention this just a few minutes ago, right, about our Eagles camp this week. What a great opportunity our coaches have 
to show the story of Jesus, but also to tell the story of Jesus. And I love that this camp does that. And if we're honest with each other, I think we probably need to grow in both, right? The, the area of telling the story of Jesus and the area of showing the story of Jesus. I don't know anyone who's like, I show the story of Jesus perfectly, right? We all can, can grow in showing. But what the text here highlights is the telling part, the message. And we know that the gospel message is what has the power to save. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's a great scripture. Many of you probably know it. There's a song to it. I would play it for you, but there's copyright things with, with streaming online. So I'm going I'm to sing it for you. All right, this is the kid's song. It goes like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel no, no, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. No, no, I am not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's pretty good, right? Amen. I'm being a little funny here, but, but our kids asked it. Like, Dad, 116, 116 song right? It's so important that, that we sing Scripture, that, that we read Scripture. So if you have kids or if you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, man, find these kids' worship songs. And when your kids start asking for them and they want to sing about God, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing because the gospel message has the power to save, and we can't shy away from that message. Jesus said it pretty clearly, kind of like Jonah, right? Jesus said this often, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or is near, depending on your translation. Matthew 3, 2, but Jesus does this a whole bunch. His message was specific, specific. And I think oftentimes we're scared to give the specific message because we don't want to offend people, right? We don't want to offend people. If you tell people that Jesus is the only way, it's offensive, right? In a you-do-you you culture, if you find your own way, that, that is offensive. If you tell people, if you don't turn from your sin, you're going to hell, that is uh, a, a scary thought, and, and the world doesn't want to hear that. But the message is dynamic, and the message has power. Let me ask, if, if God called you, you, not the person next to you, but you, if God called you to go and preach to, I don't know, New York City, or Sin City, Las Vegas, right? That's bright lights and everything. I kind of picture Nineveh like Las Vegas, or maybe Chi-Town. If God called you to go preach and, and repent and, and tell them to repent, right? And, and, just the, the, and you believe, like, would you believe that God would, would totally revive the whole city and that they would all repent? Like, if you believe that, that I commend your faith. Totally commend your faith. I would have a problem and a struggle to believe that. Maybe Eagles coaches, let me ask you, do you believe that every single student that comes that's not a Christian can have saving faith in Jesus by the end of this week? Like, do you believe that God can work in that kind of power? And so if we had this giant assignment, how would we process it? How would we think? And I want to share a quote by a pastor, a former pastor, who I absolutely love, one of the heroes of my faith. His name's Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may know him. And this is what he says in reference to Jonah. It's an awesome quote. Listen. Suppose the problem had been given to us to solve. How shall the city be moved to repentance? 
How shall its vice be forsaken and the God of Israel worshipped by all its inhabitants? If we had not been paralyzed with despair, which is most probable, we should have sat down carefully to consider our plans. We should have parceled it out into missionary districts. We should have needed at least, at least several hundred, if not thousands of ministers. Expenses would have to be incurred, and we should have considered ourselves bound to contemplate the erection of innumerable structures in which the word of God might be preached. But what saith the Lord concerning this? Putting aside the judgment of reason and all the plans and schemes which flesh and blood so naturally do follow, he raises up one man. By a singular providence, he qualifies that one man for his mission. Think about, think about that. God is bringing this entire evil city to repentance through one man. And that quote is convicting to me because it makes me question my belief in God's power, that that is the same God that I worship today, that we worship today. I, I think there are a couple key things that we need to have, and that is one is a belief in the God we serve, faith that God can do these things, that he is a powerful God. I also absolutely think we need a willingness, a palms up willingness to be used by God. But let me suggest something else that maybe isn't coming to your mind. Let me suggest that maybe what we would need is a heart for lost people. Actually, a heart for lost people. D.L. Moody has a quote. It goes something like this. Winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. Have you ever wept over someone who didn't have a relationship with Jesus? When's the last time you wept over someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? Have you mourned recently over someone who you know is going to hell unless God intervenes with a saving faith? Jesus demonstrates this for us. It says he wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19. Ask God to give you a heart for the lost because God has a heart for the lost. God had a heart for Nineveh. And so what happens when they hear Jonah's message? I kind of hinted, but let's keep reading. Starting with verse 5, it says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Wow, this is a shocker, right? This is a shocker. Because who would have guessed that God would use one man, initially a disobedient, probably crazy-looking man, to bring repentance to the biggest, most evil city in the world? Verse 5 starts out by saying the people of Nineveh believed God. And in the Hebrew structure of the text, it actually says believe first. Believe is the first word in that sentence structure because it's showing the immediacy of the Ninevites' repentance. And this brings me to my Jonah moment this morning. 
my Jonah moment of just, holy cow, this is what God does. This is how God uh, reveals things. This aha moment is that God used Jonah despite himself. God used Jonah despite himself. God used Jonah. He ran, Jonah ran away, and God still had a mission for Jonah, Despite Jonah not wanting to see transformation happen, which we're going to come to find out next week, despite a five-word sermon, maybe, maybe a five-word sermon, right? Despite these things, God uses Jonah. God uses us that way. Have you ever seen God use you for, like, great transformation in your family, in church, in the lives of people? I hope internally you're saying, yes, I've seen God use me for mighty transformation. I hope he has. If he hasn't, I just want to tell you to go live on mission. Go share the gospel with someone. That is how I most often see God's power. I see God's power through answered prayer. I see God's power through steps of faith when I, he's calling me to do something maybe that I would never normally do. But oftentimes I experience God's power when I step out and I share the message of Jesus Christ and I've seen God's use me for major transformation in people's lives. And it's all because of him. And despite myself, like I might disobey and do something crazy and terrible, and yet God still willingly wants to use me as a servant. It's an amazing thing in God's grace that he does when we don't deserve it. But ask God to use you, right? Ask God to use you to bring about repentance. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The message of God leads to repentance. This brings me to my second point this morning, and the story of Jesus leads to repentance. We must share the, the gospel. We must tell the story of Jesus, and when we do, it leads to repentance. In the text, it says the king arose from his throne. What a sign of, of humility. The king is saying, I'm going to get off my throne. Kind of juxtaposing to what Jonah did initially in chapter 1, right? The king of Nineveh, this evil king, is like, okay, believe God, I'm going to get off the throne, and I'm going to repent. This would have represented such humility, leaving his chair of authority. And the king unknowingly, I'm guessing unknowingly, but I don't know, issued all the people to follow what it says in Joel 1, verses 13 and 14. He's following and leading Nineveh in a biblical Israelite way of fasting and repentance. This is what it says in Joel. It says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offering and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. They're following this Israelite biblical model of fasting. And my question is, how in the world did they know? Like, did Jonah tell them this? Maybe Jonah's sermon was longer than five words. Maybe Jonah told them what they should do to make things right with God. Had the Ninevites watched Israel do this? What's happening here in this story is absolutely crazy. I want you to see the significance. Everything is flipped from what you would think. Like God puts Jonah, or Jonah goes through hell and high water, right? Because he wants to disobey. He's the prophet of God. And then he seemingly comes to a place of, maybe we could say like mediocre repentance, right? Because remember, he doesn't repent his sin when he's in the belly of the fish. And yet the most evil 
nation. Pagans, just like the pagan sailors that we read in chapter 1, the Ninevites just believe God right away. They just believe God. And even the animals are repenting. We get some of the satire that I talked about. Like they're putting sackcloth on the pigs, on, on the wild dogs, on the sheep, on the cows, and they're saying you can't eat or drink anything, right? Poor old Bessie has to go hungry. That doesn't seem fair. It's crazy, the story that they actually have the animals do this. But when the gospel is preached, it leads to repentance. When God's message is preached, it leads to repentance. Just a few weeks ago, we heard about this with Andre. Andre came up on this stage, and he shared about how God gave him saving faith, that his eyes were open to the true, actual message of God, that, that God saved him, that it's not on his own strength that he can make it to heaven, that he needed a substitute. It's an amazing story that God's doing in his life. When the gospel is shared, it leads to repentance. Let's go ahead and finish uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says this. The king says, after, after he says, let's turn from our violence, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. What is God relenting from? He's relenting from his anger, his wrath. And we don't like to think of God as a God of anger or a God of wrath, do we? It's uncomfortable. But he can't be just, he can't be righteous, he can't be fair without also punishing sin and evil and disobedience. And we all want a God to be a God of justice until it has to do with us, right? When someone cuts us off on the street, we want to declare justice, right? We're driving and someone cuts us off, honk, like justice come upon this situation. And then in other situations when the spotlight's on us or we have a blind spot, oh, we, we don't want that. We just want merciful, right? Merciful God, please. But we all need a just God. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful passage that if you repent, if you confess your sin, he is quick to forgive us. Thank you, Jesus. So what we have here is a story. We have a story that happened about evil people who are doing evil in the sight of the Lord, right? The Ninevites, and they must be punished. And so God, in his compassion, sends a messenger, Jonah, to go and tell them to repent. God gives Jonah a second chance. God is giving the Ninevites a second chance, right? And so the king gets off his throne and he humbles himself, but only for a time, only for a time, the king would get back on his throne. Fast forward 150 years and God does spring this prophecy true. He destroys the Ninevites. But he has mercy for a time, right? As they initially repented. I think about us getting on and off our throne, our throne of pride, our throne of autonomy from God, our throne of doing things our way, right? Feeling comfortable. And yet we needed someone to step off his throne, Jesus. God sent his son to come down to this earth. His son left the throne so he could come and live a perfect life for us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God in his compassion sends his son. Jesus humbles himself by leaving his throne to come as a servant to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He absorbed his own judgment in himself on the cross. The blood that was shed for our past, our present, our future sins, right? And his love was stronger than our sin and stronger than our death because he conquered death. And he tells us if we, if we turn to this risen Jesus for forgiveness, we will find grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we had someone to get off their throne once and for all. So I, who flip-flop back and forth on and off my throne, God, would be covered not by my own self, but by Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, for the grace that you've shown me and other people here this morning. God, I just pray that you would bring us into a deeper understanding, God, of what you've done for us. God, that we would be moved to a place of surrender this morning, that we would come to the place that you truly are our only hope, God, and that, that we would know that and that would cause us to worship you in joy this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. God in his mercy gave us the ultimate second chance. He gave us the ultimate living hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and sing and worship to him this morning.